Hey there, welcome to night school, and we're going to be uh, doing a little sociology here. We're going to be doing a little sociology. Pretty much the entirety of this show, if I wanted to be more pretentious than I already am, is talking sociology. That's something that I studied in school, and it's just, I, I feel like I just kind of, you know, it's it's just, it's raw sociology, dark sociology, all all ends of the spectrum, not necessarily dark. It's critical. I mean, I think sociology is inherently critical when you look at trends. Because I'm someone who is naturally averse to trends. I was having an email conversation with a friend of mine, and I said in the email we were talking about some trends in language that we've seen in recent years, especially with slang and phrases. And on one level, I understand that as someone who does a podcast and does listen back and hears myself talk, I'm probably extra self-aware of my own verbal tics. And some of those are just a handrail. Some of the things you say, they they just, you know, that's, that's an example right there, you know. And then when I call attention to it, I can't actually think my other thoughts because I'm trying so hard to not say, you know, or uh, or like, you know, uh, like. You could chant it like a mantra. You could probably edit this show down, and if you included all of the times that I use those placeholders, those handrails, those verbal tics, every time those come up, you could probably have an insane sound collage of me just saying those thousands upon thousands of times. But the thing is, if I think too much about not saying those, while I believe in trying not to do things, trying not to say things, Because in the end, you will actually be able to stop doing it if you consciously avoid it. Sometimes focusing on it too much while you're trying to express yourself will actually stop you from saying the thing you want to say. So sometimes it's worth having a you know, or an uh, or a like, some sort of verbal tick, because that's actually allowing you to express yourself in the way you do want to. And you're just resting, you're filling the air with something. In case you didn't know that. In case you didn't know, um, but uh, that's a good one. But uh, but uh, but uh, but uh, with language, you know, we were talking about that because he's noticed people will use certain phrases. The the one that he pointed out, and this isn't so much a new one, but it's at the end of the day. He was saying the amount that he sees at the end of the day. People start their sentences that way. They use it when they don't need to. It's become almost a form of... I sometimes think of these things as a form of punctuation. It's almost like you're... You know how in Spanish there are, there's the upside-down question mark or exclamation point at the start of the sentence? Which is smart. That's when I... You know, you see that as a kid. You see Spanish written and you see the punctuation at the beginning upside-down and then at the end right side up and you think that's weird but it actually makes sense because it's telling you at the beginning what the tone is it's strange that in english we read a sentence and we don't know what the tone is until the sentence is over so the sentence has already gone through our head without us knowing what the tone is it doesn't seem to cause me that much of an issue and I kind of like it in a weird way because it's like it, you finish the sentence and it's like, oh, now I know how it's meant. Now I know what the tone is. Now I know if they're yelling. But you'd think if you're supposed to actually exclaim or say something in a questioning tone, you should know right away. You should know at the beginning of the sentence. And I think with the way our eyes work reading, especially if you read quickly, 
you kind of see it all as a whole. You see the question mark in the sentence before you say it. You kind of you process it very quickly, maybe. But still, it would make sense to have it at the beginning too. Uh, but but anyway, I think that some of these things become almost like that. They become almost like a a handrail or a uh, just almost like a form of punctuation. And a lot of people end their sentences that way. I remember seeing a video. It was an interview with somebody. I think he was an athlete. And the video made its rounds because he ended literally every sentence with, you know what I'm saying. And you could see where it, that might as well have been a period. It, it was this verbal tick the guy had where everything he said, he said, you know what I'm saying. And, you know, blue collar, East Coast, New York, ending every sentence with, you know, you know what I, you know what I mean? So we develop these verbal tics, and I think in some cases they're useful because they are like a handrail that gets you through your thought. But they can also be annoying, and they can also make you, they can also take the steam away from what you're saying, which is one of the reasons why I try not to use them. And I know that I will use them, but if I try to use them less, I'll be better off. I'll have more control over what I'm saying. It's like anything. It's the guideline. It's like striving for perfection. You know you won't be perfect. If you're striving for perfection and you will only settle for perfection, you're probably not going to be too happy. You're probably never going to feel completely good about what you're doing. But if you strive for perfection and you don't change your, uh, you don't modify that goal. Like you don't stop striving for perfection, but you can accept the fact that you by your very nature as a human being, won't be perfect, you're going to be a little closer to perfect at the very least. You're going to be better. At the very least, you will be better. So it's that same idea, using something as a guideline, but it's like, am I going to shoot myself in the head because I can't stop saying you know? No, of course not. I'm just going to try not to do it as much as I could or would. And so when one slips in there, well, hey, it's a verbal tick. It's a handrail getting me to my next thought. But with that, you know, there's some that just bother you more than others. And for me in particular, it's not verbal tics. People's verbal tics don't actually bother me at all. I'm much more bothered by new slang, new phrases, trends in language. Trends in language, for whatever reason, disturb me. And it used to be, I was talking to my friend about this, so if, if he listens to this, uh, I'm going to be uh, commenting on some things we already talked about, but uh, the interesting thing with language is, is it used to be, especially with the internet and the quote-unquote real world, maybe I should put them both in quotes, quote-unquote internet, quote-unquote real world, but with that, I remember a point in time where if you were to use internet slang at the workplace with your family, with your friends even, with just your peers, chances are they wouldn't know what you were saying. Chances are they would not know that slang, what it refers to, where it comes from. They wouldn't be talking like that. But increasingly, the people you see online and the people that you know in person talk the same way. Internet slang and real life slang are much, you know, you're going to find a lot more crossover in those groups of people. Because... Ten years ago, you really wouldn't have heard much of that. 
maybe among certain age groups, you would hear a little more of it, the people who were online more than others. But even 10 years ago, I don't remember people talking the way they do, and not just talking the way they do, because language is always changing, but I don't remember people's language being so close to the exact same language you see from strangers online. Because when I talk about trends, I try to isolate things that I simply see from afar, like how people talk in newspaper articles, how strangers talk. I try to separate that from people I know. But increasingly, the people I know talk the same way as strangers on the internet. So that's become interesting. And no doubt part of that is it's a byproduct of every normal person being online all day, every day. And that is something that has really ramped up over the last 10 years. So, of course, everyday normal people spending all of their time on the Internet over the last decade has made them talk like other people on the Internet. They all talk very similarly because they're the same people. It's the same people who are doing that because everybody... It goes back to the internet centralization thing, too, where the internet is far more centralized. Most people are going to the exact same sites, and they're going to very few of them. Everybody is using the same applications, and they're going to the same exact websites, of which there are very few that people go to because everything is in, everything has been centralized. And as a result, you know, everything is much more streamlined. So, of course, the language in the, the real world, is getting closer to the language that you see online. And it also spans generations more, where older generations are now looking at the same things that younger generations are. And the rate at which this stuff travels is much quicker, too. Where You know, it used to be, you'd be watching a TV show about teenagers, a bad TV show that's trying to capture teenagers, and you'd hear the dialogue, and it would either be from five years ago, you know, it would either be something where you're watching something in 1995 and they're talking like they're in 1990 or the 1980s, or they'd invent language. You know, that was always funny to me. Like, we always got a kick out of that growing up, where you'd watch something about kids or teenagers and they'd actually invent slang for the TV show or movie. Like, they were so, <laughs> they wanted so bad for their teenagers in this show to seem real, that they were actually ahead of the curve in creating brand new slang nobody had heard. But when real kids saw that, they would laugh because they're like, nobody says that. Nobody, nobody, nobody says that. You know, so that was always a kind of a punchline growing up. So people, kids never felt like they were represented in most cases. But the thing is, is now the information travels much quicker. Like, I'm sure there are shows right now with teenagers, and the teenagers probably say, that's fire. And even though that's probably on its way out, I haven't seen as many people saying, that's fire. Oh, dude, listen to this song, dude. It's totally fire. You know, I don't see as many kids using that anymore. And I think in large part, it's because adults adopted it much sooner. I mean, I made the joke on here quite a while ago where... You know, there's probably soccer moms who pick up their kids and say, oh, that's fire. Because they're using Instagram too. They adopt it quickly. They want to stay relevant. And so I think the language hits older populations. I think the language hits the mainstream much quicker now. And as a result, the language has to evolve. Because that's kind of one of the functions of 
language in youth is to not use the same language as your parents. Like, fortunately, the word cool has always remained cool, which is why it's cool to say cool. Cool was really the right word. It's just, it's, it continues to work. But the, the words that people have used as a substitute for cool, they kind of come and go. Like, tight was a big one when I was growing up. I still remember the first time I ever heard it. But usually tight is used ironically these days. There's very few people who actually go around calling things tight. That one got popular before the internet was around, so old people never really picked it up. I don't know when or, you know, I don't know how much even things like TV writers picked up on that one. But anyway, my point being is now like older generations pick up the slang of youth quicker. They want to pick it up because they feel it makes them feel relevant. And people are paying attention to the same things. But it always fascinates me. And I'm naturally averse to these things. I'm naturally averse to trends when I see them. But I try to be as objective and neutral as I can because I'm also genuinely passionate about language and understanding where it comes from, who started using it, why they started using it. That fascinates me, and it's impossible to keep up with it today. But I'm very aware of it. I'm very aware of it when I see it. And then when I start seeing it in more than one place, when I start to see it from strangers as well as people I know in the flesh, relatives, friends, coworkers, you know, you start to go, huh, there's something to this. People are, people are really taking a liking to this term. And, uh, let me actually, uh, I would normally never do this, but something from an email that I was going to read here. Um, Yeah, I think this would be a a good way of kind of segueing into where I want to go here. I I apologize to my friend who I sent this email to that I'm reading something, but at least I'm reading from my own end. I'm not reading what he wrote, but I said that's one of the big things I notice about language today. It often comes from a place of irony and then becomes a normal part of the lexicon. A big difference is that even when language is normalized on the right, meaning politically, I find the people saying it are still aware of the irony and the absurdity of it, while the left seems to take it much more sincerely and the original irony or humor is lost. It's one of the main draws of the right wing today, online at least, as individualistic young men are seeking people and ideas that address the absurdity of the modern world And those same young men are repulsed by those who deny the absurdity or don't have a sense of humor about it. And I want to riff on that for a minute because I do notice that a lot of the language that young people use today, no matter where they are socially or politically, comes from a place of irony. It comes from that place originally. And I think that's sort of a... I don't know if that was always the case. I don't remember slang coming about when I was growing up or when you hear about slang from previous generations. I don't remember it being a joke unto itself. I don't remember it being used ironically. Whereas I noticed that language today is... I mean, the roots of it are almost always ironic. You know, you see where the right wing... Something... Because, I mean... And I think it's important to point out that this isn't exclusive to one political group. Something that you saw develop over recent years was where people 
on the right, let's say, I don't know that that wholly defines them, but let's just say people on the right, on a grass, the grassroots right, let's put it that way, the grassroots younger generations on the right wing started using the word based. They'd say, oh, that's based. B-A-S-E-D. And that came about apparently because a rapper, a black rapper used it. And if you've never heard that one, which I'd be surprised if you haven't, but when people say something is based, it basically means something that is unwavering and uncompromising in the face of the modern left. It basic, it's basically a way of saying, oh, look, they didn't bow before neoliberalism is basically what based means, basically what based. And so that was used ironically to begin with, somewhat, you know, at least somewhat, like the idea, like, oh, this rapper invented this phrase. Hey, let's use it too. Let's use it in a similar way, but in a way that we want to use it, you know, about the things that we want to use it uh, for. Very eloquent sentence there, I just said. Uh, But... uh, that's an interesting one. You see it a lot on the right where these things start as irony. But as I pointed out in the email to my friend, a big difference I notice with people on the right, at least the younger men, is that they stay aware of the irony, even though they eventually start using it sincerely. Because people use based and they mean it now. But they still seem to be aware of the absurdity of it. And I think that's a big difference where I notice that the left picks things up And then they forget that there was ever a joke at all, or they didn't even know that by the time they start using it. And a big one that I noticed was last year, tons of people, including people I know, again, I have to point out, there's heavy crossover in this between strangers and people I personally know, but many people started saying, y'all, women from the Pacific Northwest, women under the age of 40, in the Pacific Northwest, who I personally know to have never, you know, spoken that way, to have never had this sort of like fake Southern drawl or anything like that. But I don't think they're coming from the point of view of a Southern drawl. I think a lot of it comes from the popularity of Ebonics. I don't know if Ebonics is still the term. That's how I learned. That's that's how the term was. uh, That was the term that referred to the way black people talk. If there's a new term, I, I haven't heard it, but Ebonics was the term. Everybody knows what I mean when I say that. And that started as a from a place of irony, too. Because when I was growing up, one of the, the funniest joke that people could make, it seemed like, as far as my peer group, not my immediate friends, but just my age group, like cutting-edge humor, if you were one of the main millennials, was... White people pretending to be black, kind of. That was kind of one of the main... Oh, you could always get a laugh with with white dudes pretending to be tough gangsters. And I don't mean wiggers. I think a good example of this... This is the perfect example of this. I only saw this movie once, but Napoleon Dynamite... It has his brother, who's a a complete nerd... Who meets a black woman on on an online dating website. And then at the end of the movie, the nerdy brother is just thugged out as they say, thugged out. He's got a do-rag on, he's wearing some baggy clothes, you know, he, he's dressed like a black man. That's the joke. And he, he does something where he, like, you know, he, he, like, takes his fist and he beats his chest and, like, th- does that outward fist, whatever that gesture is called. 
and uh, he says something like, yeah, homie, you know, whatever it is, whatever, like, hey, player, what's up, man? You know, at the end of the movie, Napoleon Dynamite's brother is a wigger. And that's the joke because he's so nerdy. I can't believe he's dressed like a thug. (laughs) And that was a common punchline. Like I knew people who had, I knew white dudes who had joke rap groups. Like that became a very popular thing in the suburbs is to have a joke rap group where you either act like you're thugs, but the joke is that everyone knows you're not, or you get weird with it. Or it was like they would do a rap thing, but they would get, they would act, you know, kind of weird. I wish I could give a better example than that, but I feel like if you're in your 30s, you know what I'm talking about. Chances are you knew somebody who was doing this because it turns out I did. I knew more than one person who had kind of an ironic rap group. Again, irony. And you saw that die out after a certain point. And I feel like, you know, there's even that uh, that thing that w- that people loved years ago, which was... I think it was like Saturday Night Live comedians did some sort of rap group or rap song where they were like, I'm on a boat. You know, I'm surprised I even know that, to be honest. But people were people thought that was really funny. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is there was just this general like, it's so funny when white dudes uh, pretend to be rappers. But you also saw that in just the language that teenagers used. And I think the first time that I saw this was not with the Wiggers, because Wiggers are in a class of their own. Wiggers are in a class of their own. But I noticed just like normal white guys. And trust me, I'm very self-aware when I talk about white guys, white women. I don't want to be one of those people who's like, you ever notice that white guys do this? I never like to be one of those people who talks that way. But I'm talking about white men here. Young white men, I noticed, started to, if they'd walk into a room, they'd go, sup, player? Hey, homie. Ball in. You know, those were the sort of things they started to say. And it was that slippery slope where irony becomes sincerity, where irony or a joke, uh, what's the word, Uh, facetiousness. It's, It's a facetious sort of humor. And I remember being entertained by that briefly. I would say in the early 2000s, I remember kind of thinking that was a little bit funny. I never was like that. That was never my sense of humor. But I remember like, you know, for example, I would get dropped off very early at school because my mom had to go to work and so did a friend of mine. But other than that, all the kids who got dropped off early at junior high were thugs. Like we would go sit at this table together. It brought this group of kids together, almost like a social club atmosphere. It was like this group of dudes who every morning we'd get to school at 7 o'clock and school starts at 8, something to that effect. So we'd have time to kill. And, of course, you're a bunch of guys. You just sit together. You'd sit at one of the lunch tables and just shoot the shit, like a social club thing. But I remember, like, sitting with those thugs, and some of them were wiggers. I mean, one of them was a black guy with these piercing blue eyes, which was crazy. Uh, but some of them, yeah, you know, some of them were kind of serious about it. But then there'd be someone who wasn't a thug who would like walk up to the table in the morning and be like, "Hey, players," you know, and it was just sort of like this punchline. Like you could always get a laugh by pretending to talk in ebonics, and it wasn't something people did all the time. It wasn't really a part of someone's normal language, but they would drop that every once in a while for a laugh or just to kind of be like, "I listen to rap music and I have a sense of humor." Uh, So it was interesting to see that develop, where it started that way. 
And then at some point, that sense of humor, like the idea of, I talk in Ebonics just for fun. I mean, I can't even do, I don't, I don't practice my Ebonics accent or whatever you want to call it. I don't, I don't practice talking that way. But I noticed that that became the normal way that young white girls talk online. And you kind of saw that start with nerd culture because, like, like, again, Napoleon Dynamite, the joke is that the nerd is a thug at the end. He's a thug. But that kind of became a form of internet humor, too, where it was like, yo, I'm a nerdy white guy who talks in Ebonics online. But at some point, that got transferred to millennial and Zoomer white girls. And that became just the way they talk online. And like that whole thing that was going on years ago of like black people reaction gifs, black people reaction gifs, where it was like in response to something, you post a, a gif of a famous black person making a face. And so that became just the way people communicate. And these are people who are almost entirely on the left, mostly on the left. And at that time, I don't even, I don't think they were politicized. The thing is, when this developed, I don't think those people were politicized. I think they were naturally liberal people. I think they naturally were part of a liberal generation. But I don't believe at that point in time, they ever imagined that there was a political element to their daily life. Whereas now, their entire life is politics. Their entire, their entire life is an expression of sociopolitics. And these are the same people who got a little too comfortable talking in Ebonics online. Because now it's just how they talk. And not all of them do it in person, but things slip in here and there. But I noticed that something about talking, talking in Ebonics online greatly appealed to millennial and Zomer kids. And some of that, I think, is just the dominance of rap music after maybe 1998. And maybe this is a Seattle thing, but in Seattle, young people were still whiffing the fumes of grunge and alternative rock for most of the 90s. Like even a few years after Kirk Corbrain from Aberdeen, Washington, killed himself, even a few years after that, People were still kind of huffing those fumes. And I would say around 1998, around the time I was in seventh grade, is when most of my peers became primarily rap fans. And that's fine, whatever. It's not like I really liked any of the music going on. I mean, I did at the time, but it's not like I, in retrospect, there was really anything I leaned toward from that era. Uh, but, it, but at that point, it's kind of when most people started listening primarily to rap and R&B, at least growing up in the Seattle area. That's when I noticed kind of a shift. And I was aware of it at the time. And I'm even more aware of it now because I can see where that sort of colored people's language, that sort of, uh, you know, caused people to take on a certain tone. Like if you listen to rap music all day, you will start using some of the slang you hear. Even if you start doing it ironically. What's up, baller? Ballin, you know, that sort of humor turns into your new reality of how you talk. And the nice thing about Wiggers is they never even, they did this sincerely and they did it quickly. 
Like, Wigger, I don't think Wiggers were really a slippery slope. Like, I don't think they started doing it jokingly, and then next thing you know, became, you know, these, these wannabe black people. Or, you know, as I've said before, I don't think Wiggers can be simply defined as, like, people who want to be black. I think there's a lot more going on there. And go back to one of those episodes, because I don't want to analyze Wiggers again. But that's an, uh, speaking of that, that's another example that just came to mind. When I was in seventh grade... The song, like Offspring, the band Offspring had kind of a, a resurgence, and they had that song Pretty Fly for a White Guy, which was a, a joke song. It was a novelty song. Like, I remember the first wave of Offspring being popular. You know, my sister was a lot older than I was, and so Offspring came out. I can't believe I'm talking about Offspring right now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, Offspring got popular, and their music was pretty serious, though. You know, at least it seemed that way to me when I was in second grade. But then when I was in seventh grade, not to be confused with second grade, they came out with this total novelty song, Pretty Fly for a White Guy. And it might as well have been the end of Napoleon Dynamite with the brother now thugged out. It might as well have been that because it was about a white guy who wears a visor to the side, baggy clothes. It was about a wigger. You know, there was... there was immediate cultural commentary about wiggers. They really brought a reaction out of people, but as sort of a clown, like, look at this guy. He's a goofball. He's like the village idiot or something. And so you saw that you saw like where wiggers were, were mocked relentlessly. But the funny part about it is that wiggers themselves were completely sincere about what they were doing. They talked that way. They dressed that way and they meant it. So it's different than what we saw with, you know, people in the last 10, 15 years where what started out as this sort of joke, irony, ebonics ended up becoming just part of their language. And this got me thinking, too. I'll get into this in a minute, actually. I'm not done with this uh, completely. I mean, it relates, but I want to kind of talk about just language itself for a minute. Because I've found that myself, like I've noticed that if I joke about something or if I pay attention to something too much, I notice that my language changes or even the tone of my voice in some cases. I mean, I have a major problem on my hands because I do these freaking stupid accents so much, not just on here, but I do them sometimes just going about my day. If you're, if you follow my obnoxious Instagram account I make videos of myself talking in those voices sometimes. But I do that so often and not just it's not just that I do that, but I think about those things so often. I, I come up with funny things to say in my head even. Even if I never say it out loud, I, I've devoted so many years and so much time to the that voice, especially the the sort of New York one. And uh not to be confused with the Southern one. I know they sound the same, but uh I've devoted so much time to that that I have to be careful sometimes that I don't just talk that way all the time. And my my own friend group and I ran into this in high school. Like when we first decided that we were going to start smoking weed, not not start smoking weed, but when we start when we first started getting really into weed. Like most of us had had earlier experiences with it, but I would say when we were around seventeen, kind of as a committee. As funny as it sounds, we kind of did a vote almost. We didn't actually vote on it, but we were like, maybe it's time to start buying our own bags of weed. Because up to that point, you relied on running into a random kid, maybe one you didn't even like, and he would have weed and he would get you stoned. 
But my friends and I did that for long enough. And like around 17, we were like, you know what? We need to just reach out to so-and-so and get our own bag of weed this time. And we basically did it by committee. We did the same thing with the smoking devices where I had this corn cob pipe that I bought in Washington, D.C. when I was 13. I think I bought it in Virginia, actually. No, actually, if we, if we want to get really specific here, I believe I bought it at the Gettysburg gift shop, which would make it Pennsylvania. But the reason I'm confused is because those are all right next to each other. And during that vacation, I, I hit up all those spots, man. I hit up all those spots, player. I went to Washington, D.C. I went to Virginia. I went to Pennsylvania. You know, I went to all those places in a, the Gettysburg gift shop, a place where young American men bled to death in horrific internal warfare, the Civil War. I bought a corncob pipe that I held on to for years. And so when my friends and I started smoking weed, we started using the corncob pipe, the Gettysburg pipe. And that wasn't really working out. You know, there's a reason why most people don't smoke weed out of corncob pipes. But for convenience, we ended up smoking out of a lot of pop cans, a lot of soda cans, soda cans. They call him Soda Can Pete. You heard of Oil Can Henry? Well, I'm Soda Can Pete. Welcome to Oil Can Henry's. Uh, But we started smoking a lot out of soda cans because we always had them around. We didn't always have a pipe, but we always had a soda can. And if you're not familiar with that method, you basically make a a very deliberate indentation on the side of a soda can, preferably Pepsi. And then you just you use a safety pin or something to poke a ton of little holes in it to use as kind of like a filter, like a grate. And then you, you put the weed on the indentation and you smoke it. It's actually amazing that somebody thought to do that. But it's also absolutely horrible for you. I mean, think about that. You're holding a flame to the side of an aluminum can that's coated in God knows what. I mean, God probably doesn't even know what's on that can. Who knows what sort of, who knows what they seal it with? Who knows what's in that paint? But anyway, we put a flame to it and did that more often than I would like to admit. And very rarely did we even use an apple. Very rarely did we get organic about our makeshift pipes. And at some point, again, by committee, my friends and I were like, hey, I think it's time that we invest in a pipe. And the next thing you know, it's all a slippery slope because next thing you know, we're all buying our own bags of weed. We all have our own pipes. So-and-so bought a bong. You know, next thing you know, you're there. But it starts out where it's like, hey, maybe as a group of friends, we should invest in a, in a 20 sack. A 20 sack. Let's all pay $5, and we'll have more weed than we'll ever know what to do with. And then next thing you know, you're smoking a 20-sack by yourself at night. Next thing you know, next thing you know, you're buying an eighth by yourself and feeling like you might run out right away. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, that's where you're at with it. But still, when you start out, it's by committee. But the whole reason I'm talking about this, it's not to whack, wax nostalgic about weed, it's because when my friends and I started getting into weed, sometimes we'd be stoned and we'd say tight. We'd say that's tight. And it was ironic because we weren't the type of kids who said tight. And if you're not familiar, if you somehow missed the boat, in the U.S. around that time, the word tight became the word for cool, where everybody in my school started to say that's tight about something they liked. The first time I ever heard that, there was a kid 
it was probably about a year before it became really popular. I was at Target or Toys R Us or one of those stores that has a video game test rig. One of those test rigs. And there was this younger Mexican kid playing some new video game, and I was just watching him. And he kept muttering under his breath, that's tight. And I'd never heard it before, but I instantly knew what he meant. I instantly knew that tight meant cool. And it blew me away because I was like, there's a new word. And I instantly know what it means. And then it was probably the next year, maybe the next school year, I started to notice that all my peers were using it. And the Wiggers loved it in particular. The Wiggers really, I mean, if anybody carried the load when it came to making the word tight popular, it seems to have been the Wiggers. I would say if there's one accomplishment that you can, uh, you know, that history should remember Wiggers by, it's that they made the word tight a popular version of cool for a couple years. But it became the popular term, and as I've said before, I'm, I'm a naturally conservative person, so when there's new technology, I don't immediately buy it. I wait until it's, the dust is settled. I'm not going to be the first person who has Google Glasses. But if 10 years from then, Google Glasses are basically a requirement to make a living and live in the modern world, well, I guess maybe maybe I'll test it out. Same thing with slang. Because when new slang comes about, I don't trust it. (laughs) Exactly what I don't trust, I have no idea. But I don't trust new slang. And so my friends and I were the same way. None of us would adopt new slang. None of us used the word tight. And we thought it was ridiculous when kids would say it. But we start smoking weed a lot. And as a joke, one of us would go, that's tight. And we'd laugh. That has to happen, you know, maybe as little as three times And next thing you know, one of your friends or you, I'm sure I did it, you say it about something and you actually mean it. And so there was this little window of time and it was short, like we didn't do this forever, but there was this little window of time where we started to say things were tight. And next thing you know, we were, we were just saying it. We were just saying things were tight for a little period of time. And you know, that just shows you exactly what I'm talking about, where it's like, if you say something enough, I mean, it could be swearing. Like as a kid, you learn swear words. And so you start inserting them into sentences for emphasis. Next thing you know, they become a verbal tick. Next thing they know, you know, they become normal. Next thing you know, it's actually difficult for you to not swear, even in situations where you really shouldn't. Same thing with any language where it's like something that you are intending to use sparingly, intending to use ironically, intending to use as a joke becomes your new reality if you repeat it often enough. And so that's what I saw with all of this language. And I think a key difference, though, is the left has done that as well as the right, the younger grassroots element who would politically identify more right or more left. They've both adopted this sort of ironic language, but I think a difference is that even though the same process plays out where it becomes the new reality for different sides, I do think the right has done a better job at remembering the absurdity. And like I said in in the email excerpt that I sent to my friend, I believe a big part of that is that the right side of things, the younger grassroots side of the right, tends to be younger men at least in my experience, or maybe I'm just referring to that group, the younger men who are attracted to that. But either way, 
anything that seems to lose sight of the absurd nature of everything, not just life itself, not in some Buddhist like, oh, life's just an illusion, not even in that sense, but just in the sense that, hey, the way people talk now, what people consider priorities, just the way people think now, the culture itself has become a parody. So to act like it's not a parody, to act like the modern culture in which we live, at least in the West, to act like that is not supremely absurd and deserving of an almost contemptible level of irony. Well, I don't like it when people lose sight of that. I don't like it. That's, I think, what many people are thinking. And I think that way myself. Even though I don't consider myself Mr. Right Wing, I do relate to that way of thinking. Because anytime I become aware of the fact that someone doesn't get the joke, and just to show you how attractive that idea is, how attractive the idea is, is that, that or a better way of putting it would be, just to show you how strong of a sense young men have when it comes to this absurdity that they're aware of. When my friend Nick and I got into smoking weed, we would sometimes just sit the two of us and we would just have these long drawn out conversations, probably not unlike what you're hearing right now. And except it was with two people, not just me talking to myself, but we came up with the word capital T capital J, the joke. And really what we were talking about was the whole freaking universe. Really what we were talking about was God. We were talking about something that is larger, that is beyond everything. This comprehensive thing at the bottom of everything we do is the joke. It's this universal sense of humor. We used to talk about that and we still, to this day... If something happens, I'll get a text message from him about it, and he'll say, the joke. That's all he has to say, and I instantly know what he means. Because to us, being who we were, and we were not politicized. Like, my friends and I, we were not politicized at that point. So nothing we did, we were interested in interesting things. We were interested in interesting culture. We were purely focused on ideas, creativity. That, was, that describes what my friend group was focused on. Beyond just talking shit, beyond just getting into trouble, when it came to like what we were attracted to in culture, in subculture, it was very much, uh, anyway, I don't, I don't even need to get into that. Just the point being is that you couldn't have convinced us not to see the absurdity and we avoided people who refused to see it or simply couldn't see it. The joke was so apparent to us that how could we ever deny it? And that's a disconnect I feel with my friends who would consider themselves leftists. They seem to forget about the joke. And I'm not saying they don't have a sense of humor. Like, I have friends on the left who are very funny people. I, I genuinely do. I'm not just saying that to seem fair and balanced. If someone's in my life and I consider them a friend, chances are I like what they have to say. I like who they are, regardless of this increasing politicization. Unfortunately, I do, for just practical reasons, have to kind of categorize people today 
and it pains me to do it. It pains me to say friends on the left. But even though they're funny people, there does seem to be this overall lack of awareness, this, if nothing else, a forgetfulness of the absurdity at the bottom of it all. Be, like it just the absurdity is almost what glues everything together it's not a bad thing it's not a source of nihilism it's actually what makes life livable it's what makes life livable for me and so why the heck do you think i do this why the heck do you think i do this show a lot of this show is to underline my own absurdity the absurdity of the world and and even though i i do get into sincerity even though i i like to express meaningful things and I don't need to separate them. Like, I'm willing to go from sincerity to humor and back and forth in the span of two minutes. And I think that the modern human being should be able to adapt to that. The modern human being doesn't need to be told, for the next 15 minutes, pretend you're at a comedy show and laugh. And then for the next 15 minutes after that, pretend you're at a funeral or church. You know, the modern human being shouldn't need to be told that. They shouldn't need to be told, laugh because you're at a comedy club. You should be able to know. You should be able to pick up on that. Not that everybody can, not that everybody always has all the context needed to do that. But overall, if you're a modern human being, I believe human evolution depends on people being able to go through the entire emotional spectrum in the span of a minute and to not feel like, whoa, 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 you got to separate these things. I mean, as, as you've heard on this show, I'll talk about my mom's death. I'll joke about it. Does that mean that I don't respect my mom, you know? And does that mean that I can't then go into some sort of, does that mean that I can't express something sincerely while also expressing something meaningful, you know, even about the same thing? It doesn't. And I think that anybody with a modern brain should be able to cycle through that and not be personally invested in it. Because that's a weird thing, too. The idea that you're so personally invested in what someone's saying that you feel every emotion they're expressing. Like somebody should be able to run through the entire spin cycle at any rate they want to. And I guess that does get into my next point. Which is last night I was walking downtown and I was walking over the 4th Avenue Bridge. And there's uh, there was a homeless encampment that used to be directly under the bridge. And it's kind of moved off to the side a little bit. But there's still a lot of traffic under the bridge. There's still a lot of foot traffic down there. And as I was walking across the bridge, I noticed this woman. She could have been anywhere between 35 and 50. And it was getting kind of dark. So my age gauge was off, Okay. She could have been 20 for all I know. She could have been 80. No, I'd say she was between maybe probably 35, 40, realistically. And she was very angry, obviously a transient or homeless. And she was screaming at someone. I mean, it was, she was alternating between just angrily talking to herself and screaming at someone below the bridge, some mystery person down there. Maybe it was a troll. Maybe she was screaming at a troll down there. But she was screaming at somebody down there. And the first thing I noticed is that, you know, even though she was a white woman in her 30s or 40s, she was angrily cursing and dropping all of this Ebonics. There was tons of Ebonics in what she was saying. And that's the interesting thing is that 
even though kind of affluent or middle-class white kids picked up Ebonics and started using it ironically, and now that's how they type on the internet, they basically pretend to be black people on the internet, young white women in particular. It's always funny to see that. But it also happened with the homeless, where I grew up during a time where, you know, my, my family and I, I didn't grow up in a town where there was really any homeless, but we would go to Seattle, you know, fairly regularly because I was about 15 minutes away. And so I'd go as a little kid. I'm, I'm talking like six, seven years old. I'd go to Seattle, the Pike Place Market, First Ave. You know, we'd go over to Seattle and just do things. And that was my first and at that point really only exposure to homeless people. And I wasn't taught to hate them or anything. You know, I wasn't taught like, see them. They made poor decisions in life. But you you naturally kind of, as a kid, you're scared of somebody who's ranting and raving. It's not some anti-homelessness. We naturally feel like going to the other side of the street or avoiding someone who is cursing and screaming on the street. We just, it turns out we naturally want to avoid that. And as a little kid, that's kind of how I felt, but I would always pay close attention. I was always really interested in what they were saying. Cause let me tell you, it was like nothing else I had ever heard. It was like nothing else. Any adult that I knew was saying the sorts of things that homeless people would say. I had never heard people talk that way. And I still haven't because it was, you know, with, between addiction and mental illness, whatever else is going on, whatever demon is inside of them screaming, I at least thought the demon's words were interesting. And it, it didn't come from a place of mockery. It didn't come from a place of disdain. It was just like, I want to stay away from that person. But wow, what they're saying is, is fascinating. But I noticed at some point, like back then, you, you didn't hear Ebonics. You didn't see like a, a homeless woman screaming in Ebonics in 1993 in Seattle. But now it's common. Now if you, if you walk by like a homeless camp or just a group of homeless people, there's a good chance that all of them, regardless of age, are talking in that sort of slang. They even talk with that sort of tonality. And I think a part of it is that that's just become street talk. You know, I think that Ebonics or whatever word it is, whatever phrase describes that now. I think a large part of it is that just entered the mainstream. That just became a common way to talk, especially on the street. Because I even felt the pressure. I would say the only times that I kind of tried to talk that way sometimes, and this is really weaselly of me, was when I was buying drugs. Like if I felt like a dealer used all the latest slang... I would kind of try to act like I knew it, which is really sad, but I, I wanted, I, I didn't want to, I think I seem like a cop already and I've been accused of being an undercover cop. I've told that story on here before how I was, I was walking through this local fair and this group of younger people were screaming at me from behind after I passed them. You dropped your badge. Hey, sir, sir, excuse me. You dropped your badge. The most interesting harassment I've ever received is being accused from behind of being an undercover cop. And they were creative. You dropped your badge. And you know, it's funny. I kind of patted my wallet for a second. I kind of like just touched my wallet, not because I thought they stole it, because just like I just heard you drop something and I'm just like, oh, I got to check. And then I realized, oh, they're accusing me of being an undercover cop. I have the demeanor of an undercover cop. And even though that moment was eye opening for me, 
even though it was pretty eye-opening to get yelled at, you dropped your badge by these young, hip kids. I kind of already knew that. I kind of already knew that I have the demeanor of an undercover cop, which is why when I would go buy drugs, weed primarily, but still buying drugs, something illegal at that point, And I was never good friends with my dealers. Very rarely did one of my actual friends sell weed. So it was generally somebody who was an acquaintance of an acquaintance. And I would find myself kind of trying to let them know. Like one time, I think a best example, and it's incredibly embarrassing, is there was a guy, he worked with my girlfriend. And he was was an interesting guy. He was kind of like an interesting phenomenon. He was kind of like a pop punk wigger who made electronic music. So he was kind of an anomaly where, I mean, pop punk wiggers are a thing. Obviously, that's like a real thing because those two things were really popular at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s. Pop punk was at its, pe- at its peak. And uh, I had trouble saying that. Pop punk was at its peak. Say that 10 times fast. Say that a thousand times in a row. But pop punk was at its peak and so was the wigger phenomenon. So naturally this novelty hybrid of pop punk wiggers came to be. And you can see that with people like Travis Barker from Blink-182. You could see it with different celebrities at the time. Those good Charlotte guys. Offspring, good Charlotte. I do like Blink-182. But uh, Offspring, good Charlotte, they were kind of these pop punk, or not Offspring, but uh, I'm just commenting on the fact that I brought up Offspring earlier. It's like a total pop punk episode. But guys like Good Charlotte kind of did this pop punk wigger thing. And so I had this dealer who was kind of that. Like he seemed like a pop punk wigger who had kind of grown out of it. But he still had a little bit of that. Like he wore his hat to the side, which I admit I did for a little while. Because I was just kind of, there was a period of time where nobody, no matter what you were into, wore their ball cap straight. There was a period where everybody kind of lifted it up or tilted it. And it was, it was a way of saying, I'm cool. I'm hip. I wear my hat like you. But this guy, you know, this dealer, because he would occasionally drop some slang that I either wasn't familiar with or I was, but I didn't use, I would occasionally try to sound like I knew what was up. And there was one time where I said, I think it was pretty early on because I was trying to find a way to ask him if he always sold weed, if he was basically always available to call so that I could purchase weed from him. Because you want to find that out. Because dealers, if they're good, they'll tell you, call me anytime. And at that point, you would call them. You know, you wouldn't text them usually. You would call them, and they would call you. I didn't grow up in the beeper era, but I did grow up in the era where you called your dealer on the phone and said, hey, are you home? You want to meet me somewhere? You know, they would do that. Um, but uh, this guy, like, he didn't, he didn't completely communicate to me whether this was a one-off or not. Because you'd get those one-off sales. Like, sometimes a friend of a friend had bought an ounce and they don't normally buy an ounce, but they're willing to sell a little, a little bit of it. And so it's not somebody that you're going to call every time you need weed. It's somebody who's helping you out once. And I mean, that's all I ever did for people. I never sold weed, but if I had a lot, I might, you know, bag a little bit of it up and sell it to a friend or somebody I knew very rarely, but I, I usually smoked it all. I usually had, usually didn't want to part with any of it. Um, but, uh, So this guy, I was trying to find out if he basically was always available to sell me drugs. And so I was like, so man, are you usually holding? Because that was a real thing people said, holding. Are you holding? 
And that probably goes back farther. That probably wasn't new slang, but it was not the, t- the type of slang I would use. And I said to him, I was like, so, so man, are you usually, no, no, you know what I said? I didn't say, are you holding? I said, are you usually sitting on stuff? I didn't say, are you holding? I said, are you usually sitting on stuff? Are you usually sitting on stuff or what? And he said, he just flat out said, I don't know what you're asking me. Like we kind of did a little song and dance. And finally he was like, I don't know what you're actually asking me. He's like, are you asking me if I sell weed normally? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And he was like, yeah. And and he liked me, you know, it was like, we we actually had a good rapport while I was buying weed from him. But it was just funny because I tried to be cool. And I probably as a result ended up sounding like more of an undercover cop. And so that's one of the reasons why I never adopted this shit is because it's like, I don't want to pretend, I don't want to fake new slang until I make it. I don't want to fake it until I make it with new slang because I know that that little window of time where I'm using that new slang and not feeling it, not feeling like the like that slang comes from me, like I'm just trying to be cool or something, I don't want to even feel that for a second. I don't want to feel that feeling for a second. That's one of the reasons why I never adopted new slang, because I'm just like, it feels so freaking dirty to use new slang for the first time that I don't even want to try that. And I would, I would kind of do it with a dealer just to let the dealer know I, I, I don't have a badge. But uh, it, it, ended up, it always ended up embarrassing me and making me look like more of a cop. Uh, but anyway, at some point, like what I was getting at is this, this woman was screaming and I noticed that she, a lot of what she was screaming was in this sort of Ebonics talk. And at some point, that's just sort of what you hear on the street. And I'm not looking to give any disclaimers here because I don't think what I'm talking about should be or is truly controversial. But anytime you talk about homeless people these days, people get weird. They don't even like you saying homeless, which is a really weird, speaking of like language, a lot of the people on the left I know will correct you now. If you say homeless, they will say, they will say do you mean houseless? And I don't, I've never even seen that explained but I guess they're making a distinction between a home. It's like a house is not a home. Like they've basically gotten into the same sort of logic that 1950s housewives had about how a house is not a home without a heart. And where there's a heart, there's a home. So the idea, I guess, is that saying homeless implies that there's no heart. Whereas saying houseless refers to the fact that they don't physically live in an enclosed space that they can call their own. I guess that's the logic, but it's really weird. It's really weird to assert that, to waste your energy, to waste your own political capital correcting people on homeless, homeless by saying houseless. That's a really weird waste of political energy, social energy, and it is a waste But anyway, uh, you know, you get into this tricky territory now, even commenting on homelessness. I mean, there was an episode a while back, a couple years ago, where I talked about how I was in the woods and I was trying to avoid a homeless camp. Which, to me, that makes sense. Because if you're in the woods and you think there might be a homeless camp nearby, you don't want to walk through it. I mean, and not even just because you're afraid or you look down upon homeless people... You just, out of respect even, out of respect for like those people in their space, even though they're in a public place, 
I'm not just going to go walk around their things. It's a, a matter of respect. It's for the same reason I don't crowd someone on the street. You know what I mean? It's like it's for all the same reasons. It's just a matter of personal space and respect. But I did an episode where I, I talked about trying to avoid a homeless camp. And a girl that I was kind of seeing at the time listened to this sh- to that episode. And she's honestly a wonderful, like honestly, a, a real catch. Like, like I have no criticism of her personally whatsoever. I, I truly I'm still friends with her. I think that she is phenomenal. And that sounds like a disclaimer unto itself. It's the truth. I don't want this to have any bearing on her character. But she heard that episode and just... I keep this, like, I don't date anymore, but back when I would, like, see people, I always kept this show away from them as much as I could. A girl who is interested in me in my personal life has no business hearing the sorts of things that come out of my mouth here. Not because I'm wrong. It's just, that's not a good dynamic. It's like a his and hers thing. This show is like my soap shelf. This is like my sink. Like, this show is like my sink in the master bathroom that has two sinks right now, both sinks are mine, but if I am dating somebody, it's a nightmare to think of them hearing this show. And this is a great example where she heard that show and she was like, you know, I'm kind of put off by what you said about homeless people. And I was like, what did I even say about them? You know? And I, and I, I said to her, I was like, I can't apologize for anything I said. And she ended up backing off and and it didn't create a problem, but just, I was taken aback a little bit that she heard that and simply me saying that I was trying to avoid a homeless camp brought out some sort of reaction in her. And that tells you a lot about that dialogue, the sort of homeless versus houseless, where you probably aren't even supposed to talk about the things that homeless people scream these days. Whereas when I grew up, if you heard a homeless people say something particularly strange or significant, where you're like, whoa, I can't believe you thought of that. You would tell your friends, you would tell people, and it wasn't considered impolite to be like, there was a guy on the street ranting and raving, and he said, you know, basketballs are actually uh, dried children's heads that have been hollowed out and made pliable so they can bounce. You know, a guy was talking about that on the street. You wouldn't believe it. That's my own theory, by the way. Basketballs used to be children's heads. They were hollowed out. The skull was removed. They were processed in such a way that allows them to stay firm while bouncy. But they were originally children's heads. You've heard of a shrunken head? This is the basketball head, baby. Children's heads are being turned into basketballs. But anyway, if somebody said something crazy, you would tell your friends and there would be no... It wouldn't be an indictment of that homeless person. Saying something about what you heard on the street was not a judgment or an indictment of that homeless person. You weren't actually interfering with that person's well-being at all, and you could actually still have empathy, sympathy. You could still understand that that person might have had a bad life, and you can wish them the best. You could maybe even help them, give them money, do whatever you want. But finding the humor in what they said is not offensive, But we've entered a world where I feel like that's probably the case. If me saying I was trying to avoid a homeless encampment when I was, you know, uh, trespassing in the national park, which is what I was doing. If that's somehow questionable from a, a very cool girl, too, you can only imagine what 
what I'm about to tell you, com- how, how what I'm about to say comes across, or what I've been saying for the last 10 minutes about like how homeless people have increasingly started talking in Ebonics regardless of their background, which is true. Like you will commonly hear people screaming and yelling at each other or just talking that way. It's just become street talk. But anyway, you know, just because you're joking about something doesn't mean that it replaces something else. It doesn't mean that it actually negates the thing you're talking about or interferes with it in any way. It doesn't block out your empathy for that person like an eclipse. Humor occupies its own space. And if you and while these things feed into humor, while real things and serious things and silly things and all kinds of things feed into humor, humor mostly occupies its own space. And you have to be careful about humor for all the reasons I'm talking about today, because you can start a joke. And I mean, like the BG said, I started a joke and the whole world was laughing at me. And that's sort of what happens when you start saying tight with your friends. And next thing you know, you find yourself saying tight sincerely. That's what happens when you start out saying, hey, baller, hey, player. And next thing you know, you talk like that. And you're posting black people reaction gifs online. You know, that's the slippery slope of humor. And that's why humor needs to be aware you know, you need to be aware of, of your sense of humor. Otherwise, you can't, it can just become a reality. But as long as you know it's humor and you know what your intention is, it doesn't hurt anything else. It's not like you're going up to somebody and mocking them. It's not like you're demonizing them in any way. Most humor is observation. Most humor is simply noticing things. I've noticed, as I live in a town that for its size has a very large homeless population, and I'm sure many people can say that about themselves right now, especially on the West Coast, you pick up on the language. And for me, like it's, it's been interesting that on these two completely different ends of the socioeconomic life spectrum, like wealthy white girls from liberal families who work in offices use Ebonics when they're talking on the internet and homeless, addicted, mentally ill women, white trash women will be screaming in Ebonics on the street. It's interesting that both ends of the spectrum, you see the same thing, but this woman was screaming in Ebonics and then she screamed, I'm going to break your neck. And I I thought that was funny, not because she wanted to break someone's neck, who was probably her friend, but it reminded me of another story, which I've told on here before, which is when I was in a gas station some years back here in Olympia, I was in a gas station store in the little shop, and uh, I believe I was with Miles, it was when Miles still lived here, so it was some years back, and we were just standing in line, and we just hear this commotion, and we hear this just awful voice go... I'm going to stab you in the neck, motherfucker. And we look over and a man with one arm was coming into the store and he had one sleeve pinned to his shoulder because he had one arm. And I should get into that because I've never thought about this until recently. I was thinking about this guy and I've always just accepted that when you see somebody with one arm and they're in a long sleeve shirt, they pin the sleeve to their shoulder. That's something I've seen more than once. And I've never questioned it. It's like, I'm not going to question what a one-armed man does with the empty sleeve of his shirt. I'm not going to question that. 
but I've never actually thought about it because, you know, all it takes is not fastening it to your shoulder one time. Like, that's not even something that you have to teach a one-armed man. Like, another one-armed man doesn't have to go up to another one-armed man and say, hey, here's a little, here's a life hack. You can pin that long sleeve to your shoulder, and that way it doesn't just dangle, and you don't just have this empty sleeve dangling around. Because you can imagine that all a guy has to do is one time, if you have, if you have all a one-armed guy has to do is one time let that sleeve dangle like a noodle all day, this long sleeve with nothing in it, just flapping. All you have to do is do that once to realize I've got to pin this thing up here. So anyway, I completely understand now why he had his long sleeve pinned to his shoulder. But he screamed, I'm going to stab you in the neck, motherfucker, in this vicious voice to his friend, it turned out. And they were both transient guys. I don't know whether they were homeless or houseless or transient. I don't know how to categorize them, but they fell into one of those categories. But then once everyone realized that this was a one-armed man screaming at his friend, everyone just went back to business. Like the store owner, the guy working there, everybody was alarmed. I mean, you hear that. You hear, I'm going to stab you in the neck, motherfucker, with the utmost sincerity and venomous anger. You're going to worry for a second. But once everybody saw that it was a one-armed transient man screaming at his friend, And that other than that interaction, they were just coming into the store like normal. We all just went back to business. But what I remembered is, I'm going to stab you in the neck. And when I told that story on here last time, I got a message from Brent. Shout out to Brent if you hear this. Shout out. That's my way of staying staying hip is saying the word shout out. The phrase shout out. Shout out. Shout out. (laughs) That's terrible. Shout out to uh, shout out to Brent. But Brent messaged me after he heard that because he said while he was listening to Night School, I don't know if he was listening to that episode, but while he was listening to Night School after hearing that episode, he heard a commotion outside of his house, outside of his window. And there were, I guess, I think transient people out there having some sort of dispute. And I, I... I'd have to look at the actual message. It's not my story. It's not my memory. But if I remember right, a guy threatened to cut another guy's neck with a chainsaw. Like it was something involving a neck again. Or I think maybe there was something involving harming someone's neck. And at the time, Brent said to me, he's like, what is it with necks? Because when I think about people I know, like even if they're going through the motions of like what they would do in a fight, because, you know, my friends and I have those conversations all the time. Well, here's what I do, man. I'd get him in a sleeper hold and then I'd poke his eyes out and I'd kick him in the balls as hard as I could. But nobody really talks about the neck. You'll hear people say things like I would break his nose. I would kick his ass. Very rarely do you hear somebody in your everyday normal life, no matter what sort of theatrical you know, bravado they're, they're uh, displaying like about someone who they want to hurt. Very rarely do they like zero in on the neck. But this guy said, I'm going to stab you in the neck. Brent heard this guy threaten another guy's neck. I think there was a chainsaw involved. I hope I'm not making that up. And then now this lady talking about breaking someone's neck. And so is there something about being on the street that makes you extra aware of the vulnerability of someone's neck? Or is this, did I just, you know, am I just imagining something? I don't know. I mean, you know, the streets are no doubt a jungle unto themselves. And you think about, you know, wild animals, 
zero in on people's necks. And yeah, you can, someone would hear this and be like, are you saying homeless people are wild animals? Well, first of all, I would never use wild animal as an insult. I'm not someone who would ever call someone an animal or a wild animal as an insult. So anybody who would be offended by that is just going to lose right off the bat because I don't mean wild animal as an insult to anybody. But uh, someone would say, like, you're uh, comparing homeless people to wild animals. But no, there's something about that where, for example, I know that, I know that like uh, cougars, wildcats will go for the neck. Dogs go for the neck. There seems to be something primal about going for the neck. Animals know it. It seems like if you're living on the streets, there's something about threatening someone's neck that has extra potency, even when you don't mean it, even when you're just yelling at your friends. It's just something interesting I noticed, because the second she said, I'm going to break your neck, motherfucker, you know, whatever she said, I instantly was like, oh, it's another neck reference. And I just thought of that. Just, you know, it goes back to language, too. I mean, maybe not, but there's something maybe about being on the street. You know, this is a very small sample size. I don't want to come to any sociological conclusions about this, but threatening someone's neck, it seems to speak to someone when their situation revolves around survival, when they're operating on a more primal level. Because I think if you're living on the streets, there is something more primal about it in the sense that you're focused on immediate survival. And with that in mind, when you threaten somebody, there's probably this immediacy to it as well. Because you think about like slitting someone's throat. Like there's this idea that like the quickest way to get rid of someone beyond like shooting them in the head is to go for their throat, to slit their throat. So it seems like people are just aware of that. Because I would never think of it. Like, I don't think that way. Like, I don't sit around fantasizing about fighting people. But on the rare occasion that I do, which is usually when somebody makes me paranoid, like if, I notice, if I'm walking down the street and I notice that somebody's behind me for a little too long, I start to think, well, here's what I would do to him. Here's what I would do to him. But it never involves the neck, which is interesting. Like, I never think about, oh, I'd go for his neck. But it seems like if you're on the street, you seem to be more aware of the vulnerability of the neck, which is smart. And it's smart that wild animals go for the neck. It's a smart decision all around where if you want to hurt somebody or threaten them, go for the neck. And I would call this neck talk. We're doing a little neck talk here. Having ourselves a little neck talk. A talking neck. You ever heard of a talking neck? But, uh... This is interesting stuff to me. And the the strange, what's strange about all this is that it seems that the more aware you are of the capital T, capital J joke, the joke, the more aware you stay of the absurdity, the more intact and open your sense of humor is the easier it is to find meaning in life, the easier it is to be sincere. And I think that's something that's missing when people think that humor and sincerity are competing or that one replaces the other, that to joke about somebody screaming something, to joke about homeless people going for each other's necks, to think that joking about that 
somehow mocks them or punches down. For all anybody knows who hears this, I'm just commemorating that person's existence. They said something that stuck in my head that made me think. You know, is there probably an element of... I don't know. I I don't feel like I have any mockery in me. I don't feel that I'm mocking these people. They're people who are behaving in a way that is out of the ordinary. And I don't feel that I need to give a disclaimer about this either. But I'm just making the point that having a sense of humor actually gives you a larger range of sincerity. It's like how having discipline makes your free time more valuable. Working out makes sitting on the couch more valuable. Joking about life, seeing the inherent absurdity of life, including the way we talk, the way other people talk, the reason people communicate the way they do, the reason people take on the identities they do. You know, when you stay aware of the fact that there is something inherently absurd about it, it allows you to feel the sincere moments. It allows you to have empathy and feel it that much stronger. Because you're kind of tending to the whole of the garden. And I don't like this idea that we are in church all the time now. Because that's a feeling I have. Like I feel like culturally we have this attitude that we are in church all the time. And I do believe this ties back to the online world where so many people are focusing on the same centralized internet all day, every day. They're looking at the same things. They're staring at the, they're getting the same information. They're getting a lot more information that makes them feel sad or bad. And that makes them more solemn And as a result, they kind of do feel like they're in church. There's always something every day that we should be solemn about. And you can be solemn about those things. When you hear about something bad that happened in the news, you can be solemn about that. Does that mean you have to make it an act? Does that mean you have to tell other people they can't have fun? You know, it kind of gets back to like alcohol laws in Utah or something where you can't buy alcohol on Sundays because the idea is that, you know, we're in church. Today is a holy day and you shouldn't be doing anything outside of that. And if you are, if you're not going to church, we don't want you to drink or do anything that we don't want you to do. It's a way of controlling other people who aren't doing what you are doing or what you value. And that's sort of the vibe that's in the air now, where God forbid you get online and make a joke on a day that a mass shooting has happened and the you haven't heard yet. Or even if you have, you're not riffing on that. You're not farting in church. Excuse me, I don't like to talk about farting, but that's the sort of feeling that that you get these days is like if you were to pop online and make a joke on a day that has been branded a solemn day, what are you doing, man? You're making a noise in our space. You're making the wrong noise in our sacred space. When the reality is, no, you're not. You're in your own little pocket. So you're not at their mercy. They can't impose their 
dry county law on you. But people have a need to do that. People have a need to to control things. They have a need to kind of mark their territory and then control all of it. And uh, I don't know. I just want to make the point that, you know, the full spectrum includes humor. It includes constant recognition of the absurdity because I don't really, you know, I, I truly don't understand how you can be alive today and not see everything as fundamentally absurd and then work to give your life meaning, avoiding the nihilistic trap of absurdity. Because you can, I mean, and this describes me when I was younger. I, w- I would never say that I was truly nihilistic, but I did kind of have an attitude of like, things are so absurd and I can't deny it. So I can either be miserable about it. I can either, even though I'm finding humor in things, I can either be miserable, miserable about it and do very little. Because why? Why would I do anything in an absurd world? Or I can do something more absurd and find value in that. And do healthy things. And just have a good time where I can find it. Or I can do that. And you know what? There's something extra absurd about that. There's something extra absurd about taking care of your body. Knowing that your body is constantly falling apart and you're going to die and no longer have that body. There's something absurd. And a lot of people use that as justification to not get in shape. And nobody's making them. Live the life you want to live. But a lot of people use that as the justification. And that's interesting to me because it's like, it's sort of more, it's a greater celebration of the absurdity to be able to do meaningful things within that greater absurdity. And I think there was a part of me that when I was a teenager and I became very aware of that absurdity, a part of me was wondering if it would subside. Because you hear about people growing older and they kind of get more normal. The world starts to feel, they start to mold to the world a little more. They're kind of established in who they are. And as a result, they feel that they know their place in the world. I always kind of wondered if maybe life would feel less absurd as I got older. Well, guess what? It got more and more absurd. It didn't get less absurd. The, The dial got turned all the way up. And maybe it always was. Maybe the dial was already far to the right. But with time, I've become aware of that fact. I've become aware of how truly strange and absurd everything is. And that's why I try to do meaningful things when and where I can. But I'm also comfortable alternating. And I'm also comfortable joking about anything. You've heard the things I joke about, personal tragedies. And I'm not talking to anybody who would ever listen to this show because I don't think this is a sermon that they need. But I do feel it's important to verbalize these things because people don't seem to be aware of it. They don't seem to be aware that you can go from one end of the spectrum to the other and back again without negating any part of that spectrum at any given time, without eclipsing anything. By talking about how homeless people seem to have a preoccupation with the vulnerability of other people's necks. By noticing that my generation started with this sort of irony, ironic ebonics, and that evolved into this weird sort of online ebonics that now housewives talk in. You know, by pointing that stuff out, I'm not looking to condemn anybody. 
And I don't feel that pointing those things out, I don't feel that observing those things, I don't feel that seeing the light in those things eclipses anything else. It doesn't eclipse the fact that they're human beings just doing what they think is right or doing the best they can, assuming they are doing the best they can. Not everybody is. That's a myth that's been perpetuated. Everybody's just doing the best they can. Not everybody. A lot of people are. Not everybody, but... You know, that's that's where I'm coming from on this, where even the fact that I feel like there's a built-in disclaimer to talking about certain things is one of the reasons why I have to talk about these things. It's not like I'm out to be a a shock humorist. I'm a shack jack. I'm a shack I'm a shack jack. A shack jack? He's a shack jack. What's a shack jack? What's a shack jack? I'm not looking to be a shack jack. I don't feel that my humor... Well, you know, when I was younger, I enjoyed shock humor maybe a little bit more. I definitely did growing up. I don't feel that my humor rests in any kind of shock humor area. And this is getting just into this like internal self-analysis. So it's a good time to kind of close out the episode. But, but still, I just want to make that point. That, you know... And two, if you want to appeal to people... If you want to appeal to young men in particular, you can't tell them that things aren't a joke. Yeah, there's a time and a place when you should or shouldn't joke about something. Like, I would never go into a church and make a joke during a sermon because that's not why those people are there. You know, yeah, like the cool pastor will kind of have a, a cheesy sense of humor. And it's, oh, this is the cool pastor. He's got a sense of humor. You know, there's that type of shit. But I would never go into church just like I would never go to someone's grandma's funeral and crack a joke about her. You know, just like I would never do that. But don't start telling me that everything is your grandma's funeral. Don't start telling me that everything is church. Because that seems to be the message I'm getting. The message that I seem to be getting from certain aspects of our culture is that you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't do that, because it negates something, it destroys something, it interferes in something, it takes all the goodness out of something. And not only that, the big reason you can't do it at all is because everything is my grandma's funeral. And even you making a joke in the McDonald's parking lot a mile away is a disrespectful gesture towards my grandma's memory. To me, that's the sort of logic people are operating on when they tell you what you can and can't say or can joke about, not joke about, or what your intention even is. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land 
where children can run free. 